episode of our podcast, Elise and I had a chance to chat with opera director and coach Mark Lamana about all things artistic, but especially about this idea of artistic codependence. Hmm, what is that you might say? Well, tune in and find out. Enjoy. We are all here. Can I ask, I'm, I would love to know more, Mark, about your, um, where, where did you move from when at 17 you moved to New York? And also, I think I read that you were a singer. Is that true? I'm from I'm from upstate New York. Instead. Okay, upstate New York. Gotcha. And then I would just love to know kind of where um, you're uh, more about your journey. You're obviously you've been doing this a long time. You you're seasoned. I read some of an article from Classical Singer magazine. You were um, stage director of the year in 2007, I think. Right. So if you already had that sort of acclaim 12 years ago, then I, I just am curious, like when you like I love your story about going around in the theater district and just zigzagging and wanting to be a part of that life and putting your ear up and trying or getting a standing room ticket and just sort of immersing yourself in that. So from there, you know, when you were young, where did your ambitions and your career sort of take you? Well, I don't have I don't have a real linear path at all. That's great at all welcome to life <laughs> as a freelancer yeah. right yeah. whatever you'd like to share you don't have to <laughs> you... yeah. when i was 22 uh, yeah. oh it's not it's not like that no um it was you know i don't want to get a lot into the past that's a whole other thing in fact i'm writing a book about it but it was not easy growing up in syracuse new york i grew up in a rural moderately rural area it was not easy, and I needed to get out. I needed to get out. And from a very early age, I fell in love with musicals. They were on, they were on television. And uh, not just the movie musicals, but, like, have you ever seen the Cinderella, the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella with Leslie Ann Warren? Yes. No. I Hold on, I'm taking notes. I saw you. That one, right? Yeah, yeah. And she was, she was, you know, to this seven-year-old, she was, she was a revelation because, well, first of all, because she was so good. I mean, when she sang, it was like, she was a method actor and she was an Agnes DeMille level dancer and she sang and, you know, on a black and white television screen, which was only going to be on once. It was going to be on once. It was highlighted in the TV guide, and it's like, wow, I'm, and I'm going to watch this. And so for two hours, glued to the set, and just being drawn in by her, not by everybody in the show, but mostly by her. Yeah, she's the one that you'll remember, I feel like, when you watch that yeah. film. Mm-hmm. I mean, her eyes were just dripping with feeling. And that's what I fell in love with was that people, I loved to sing, but people sang how they felt. And what was on the radio 
I liked it. I mean, I loved the Beatles. I loved, um, you know, I loved the top 40 as much as anybody, but I was not into rock music. I was more into Streisand. I, I just, I needed to feel things. And music was, to me, singing was, you can feel this when you sing it. Musicals were where I veered toward, but also like those TV, those TV musicals, they were on once. There was no sheet music available to me. There were no record albums available to me. I did not have what was called a tape recorder, you know, <laughs> had my two hours in front of the TV screaming to anybody come in like, don't interrupt. <laughs> but I would be, I would be feeling along with, and I would be memorizing the lyrics, and I would be listening for the jokes and looking at the costume. I just did it. I just Pouring did it. I didn't think about it. I just, I just did it. And then after the show was over, I would, you know, the next few weeks, I would be drawing the costumes and remembering choreography and remembering the lyrics to the songs, which I found out I did know the following year when it was on again. And I'd pick up more information, but it was like this stuff was very. I needed something that I loved to fill my mind, and that's what I found. That's what I loved the most. But there were no musicals to be in, and there was no singing lessons, and there was no dance lessons, and there was there was nothing. There was basically nothing. There was just, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and you know, I had that album which. I listen to three times a day. But again, it's wow. just it's music. It's music. And what I didn't realize until later was, you know, my, my voice teachers would say, my God, you have wonderful rhythm. Where did you learn how to do this? <laughs> and it was from listening to Judy Garland sing. Mm -hmm. It's just in listening to Buddy Rich play the drums. And one thing that I did that I found that nobody I know was ever really talked about, but we had a stereo system that was, it was a console. So the music came out, you know, the front vertically. My body in front of it and sort of hug the unit to me so that I feel the music oh. going directly into my body. And I closed my, it wasn't, it wasn't to disappear. It's like, I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel something that I didn't hear the word for it till much later was I was listening for the inner rhythms and I couldn't hear them through the burlap that was over the speakers. Mm -hmm. But huh. music was really, I don't even know what to call it. It just felt like the most natural. It's like a fish being in water. It just felt like that was the water. And I did have a little piano a little, a few piano lessons. They were not successful. It wasn't, I didn't have a good teacher and I played the clarinet for a while, which I liked, but the only music available was band music. And I didn't like band music. I, hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just didn't like it. It had too much to do with sports and football. And I, uh, you had a little Benny Goodman, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. And uh, I had a real affinity for the music of the 40s, and I still do. Oh, absolutely. This is something I think that we all share a love of, because I feel like the uh, 40s music 
is such an ex- you know it's such an example of you know you're talking about like heart you're talking about like true connection this was a time in our history in america's history when you know we we needed it so much right like so many mm-hmm. people we'd lost and so and music was a way to keep feeling without having to talk about it right mm-hmm. i'd agree with that i think that um I also, you know, I I wrote a lot and I dabbled in architecture. Um, I just had a lot what, of interest. I drew. What did you write? Music, poetry? No, no. Short stories. Um, I wrote I wrote stories. I wrote short stories and and uh, and poetry. I tend to speak poetically. Mm-hmm. I don't try to. People have said, "Oh, you have such a poetic way of saying something," and yes. I'm like, like really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I write a lot now. I write about three hours a day. It's uh, some of it is fictionalized memoir, but it's mostly. I don't know what I want to do with it. I you know I don't know if it's a series of blogs. I don't know if it's a book. I don't I don't really know what it is. But uh, whenever I come home from a rehearsal and and a singer has said, "Oh my God, you said this thing the other day," I go home and write about it hmm. because I think that it could. I don't know. When it do speaks something. to somebody, then you know, like, maybe I need right. to dive into that more. Yeah, that makes sense. Or maybe just record it. But I want to just get back how I started. I'm not I'm not all that interested in how I started, but you asked the question. Um, I'm interested, and I think our listeners are. When they see someone who's where you are, they're like, well, where? Did, how did he get there? You, again, without getting into a lot of a lot of detail, I was a gay kid growing up in an incredibly homophobic time. I was terrified most every day and spent my life trying to pass. That's what I did from birth to 17. Difficult to speak, not because I didn't know how to speak, but because it saying what was on my mind was not encouraged anywhere. And without realizing it, I had actually become afraid of what I might say. So I, I tended to be very quiet. And when I got into some musicals um, in my late teens, I had a pretty good singing voice, but that they they said you're a natural dancer, which really surprised me because I had two left feet. I really did. So really I said, okay. Really? No. <laughs> really. really. And that, I got to see this. I got to see it. No. The big toes were both on the right side. <laughs> well, you see, anything I realized is that when it, it was theater dance, and the first show I did this in was I think George M. It was a it was a a high school nearby was doing this musical, and I auditioned for the summer, and I got it. And they had a lot of really good singers in the show, and I got I, I was in the chorus, and I tap danced. I had never tap danced before, but what I found was that social dancing was sexual, and I was doing everything I could to not look sexual because if I look sexual, I was in danger. Suddenly they were like, put your arms up like this. I suddenly had flair and, but there was this big disconnect. And so I focused on movement and then somebody pushed me into a ballet class and said, well, if you want to, if you want to do New York theater, you've got to learn how to dance. And if you want to learn how to dance, you have to do ballet. So I did. And then I fell in love with ballet. Mm. And what happened was I graduated Technically, I graduated early. I graduated a couple months before I was 17. And then they decided I needed to 
I needed to have gym class. Ugh. I had to have four years of gym class. That's why I, I did the so same I had thing. Back... I, I had to take um, I had to take bowling. Sorry, go on. That was my credit for gym. Sorry, go on. <laughs> bowling. bowling. <laughs> needing, you know, being forced to bowl. Like you have to bowl. Gradually. I mean, I don't know anybody who has scored lower, especially with bumpers, than this than this person. Oh. <laughs> I didn't care. I was like, just throw. I like had my brothers with me. I'm like, just throw them down. Like, just sorry, sorry. <laughs> Poor thing. Sorry. Well, so you needed a gym credit. During that, yeah, I I said, but I take ballet class, and they were like. Yeah, we know, but you need exercise. What? Someone doesn't understand what ballet is. Times have changed. So what I did was I had to stay in Syracuse for one more semester. And it was it was kind of good that I did because I, I had to take two gym classes because I had I had you know I had to have double double the gym to make up for the whole year, which is that's it's like cramming gym. But what I did was I was I was taking ballet classes in Syracuse and I found a voice teacher and going to school was fraught because oh for different reasons. It's like I don't want to get into a whole big family history thing. But it was not presented that there are schools where you can go and get university trained for theater. It was you should go for business or you're gonna be, you know, lacking. And what happened was I saw an audition in the back of a magazine at the ballet school and it was for the Joffrey Ballet and it was for a summer a summer scholarship program. So I called them and I said I want to audition and I had had a whopping 3 months of ballet and I told my mother, I'm going to New York. And she said, oh, no, you're not. And I said, oh, yes, I am. And I took a bus and I had a hotel room booked. And I went to a two-hour ballet class, which was the first time. I'd never, I'd never had a class over 90 minutes. So first of all, it was exhausting. Second of all, it was hot. Oh, Plus, sure. there was a room chock full of kids who had been dancing since they were like four and five and six, and half the terminology I didn't even I didn't even know. I just faked I what I didn't know, and I got it. I got a scholarship to the Joffrey, and so that year, like two months later, I moved to New York. I found a room and board situation in a Quaker boarding house, which was a godsend. It's really just beautiful house in Manhattan. Hmm. And uh, meals were made, and it was it was it was really good. And I studied, and uh, while I was studying ballet Monday through Friday, uh, which was like four classes a day, and just as much energy as I had. Plus, they wanted me to lose five pounds. I was I was 135. They wanted me to be 130. My teacher, my unnamed teacher, recommended that I have a couple of cigarettes and a cup of black yes. for lunch. <sighs> yeah. It's my break. That was That's my break. the ballerino diet. Yep. Oh, man. And I had burn. I had energy to burn. I was 17. I had more energy than 12 people. I still kind of do. <laughs> but, uh, 
But on Saturdays, on Saturdays, I found a voice teacher. On Saturdays, I took a voice lesson, and I also took an acting class. For a year, I studied with teenagers, which was really great. It was really great for me. And then I kind of was realizing that even though I loved ballet, my heart really was a musical theater. And they kind of put that to question. They said, do you want to be a ballet dancer? Do you want to? Because I was teaching musical comedy classes upstairs in the, in the, at, at the Joffrey. And, uh, and I had chorus line fever. So I was seeing that a few nights a week in standing room. Anyway, I just, I just, I wanted to be this really great triple threat. I just wanted to, I wanted to know who I was. I wanted to be able to communicate, express myself. I wanted to be able to sing anything and I wanted to be able to dance. So that's kind of like what, where I, I entered, you know, and I did some shows and I did one Broadway show, which in the chorus, um, actually I was a swing for the chorus and I understudied a couple of roles and that was great because of the people that were in it. I mean, it was, it was Alan J. Lerner wrote it and Charles Strauss wrote the music and Len Carew, my hero, my Sweeney Todd hero, mm -hmm. he was the lead. And I actually, it, you know, it's like, it's not on IBDB, but one of the things they asked me to do, because our show closed on opening night, they said, once the show opens, since you know all of his numbers, we want you to watch the show. And when it looks like he needs a brush up, we want it to be you that gives it to him. So... Mm. That was really kind of cool. The only actual experience I actually had was during rehearsals. If he was upstairs in the balcony of the theater, I would sometimes have to go get him. So I was this stuttering mess, you know, <sighs> to carry you. you know, they want you. <laughs> Will you share your story? This, this feels like a good moment for it. Will you share your story about ushering um, with Sweeney Todd? Oh. And oh, then... oh, 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 oh. I got you. I got yeah, you. Yeah. Um, okay, okay. No, that was, that was, I had a friend. I had a friend. Um, I was always getting a part-time job somewhere, and a friend said, do you want to usher? And I said, well, I've never done that. And so I got this gig as a non-union usher because it's a, it's, a, it's a gig. It's, an, it's a unionized gig. And so I ushered, and I was doing, you know, they're playing our song and Peter Pan and a few other things. And... Then one night, my friend said, there's there's a meeting. Why don't you come with me? Because we were going to go out afterwards. So we went to this union meeting. And at the meeting, they said, we need people to usher Sweeney Todd. And nobody raised their hand, which I thought was ridiculous because I had the album set in it. I had memorized it. I was like, Sweeney Todd. And and, and to, it come to find out they didn't want to usher it because you've made the same amount of money per show. So if you work two hours and 10 minutes doing Peter Pan, or you work three hours and 15 minutes doing Sweeney Todd, you do the math. And so I, you know, idiot, I was like, I'll do it. So I saw the show eight weeks in a row. I saw every performance for eight weeks in a row, which wow. taught me so much. It taught me so much because every moment that I wasn't doing something, I was watching the show. And I swear, everything I know about comedy is from Angela Lansbury and Len Carew because they were just spectacularly funny. But I mean, deeply funny. It came from it came from character and it came from situation. 
So I learned a lot about how to play comedy by watching them. And there were lots of, you know, there were mishaps, you know, it's like the role of Sweeney has this trap in it, which is that the actor can get really, I don't know if in real life depressed, dour, but sort of, right? it, it's dour, it gets dour. And then all of a sudden, right before a little priest, which is this comedic showstopper, he has to shift gears. But I started, once I got used to them doing it, I would start noticing that every night in the same spot, it seemed like she was working a little differently. And I started watching the two actors rather than the two characters. It was like, it's like she would say, and she said, this seems a downright shame. He goes, shame, seems an awful waste. Such a nice plump frame. What's his name? Has, <laughs> had, has, nor can't be traced. <laughs> And like she's trying to she's trying to elicit something from a business needs a lift. And he's just sitting there. And sometimes I got the feeling that it was Angela Lansbury going, be with me. Like, like, and I'm realizing this is an audio, not a visual. It's it, it it's like eliciting love. It was almost like what I recognize it as a director and also as an actor is like when the other person isn't engaged in a in a way that you need them to be. You need to pull it out of them. Well, she, I watched her pull this thing often. And I'm not saying it's because he needed to be pulled and prodded. He's a brilliant, oh my God, that man was so brilliant. He was so brilliant, 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 brilliant. I just loved him. But all of a sudden he has to go, with the price of meat, what it is, if you get it. No, when you get it, if you get it. And he'd go, Ha! And it was just that. Ha! Good, you got it. And then the next thing he sings, he's suddenly so lyrical. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion, eminently practical and yet appropriate as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've lived without you all these years, I'll never know how delectable. And it was so light and airy, which was nothing like he had been the previous hour and 15 minutes. And so just that happening, the whole audience would just start rippling with this relaxed energy. And suddenly we were in, we were totally with them. Huh. Over the next seven minutes, they just took us to these comedic heights and, and people were screaming every single night. And I've never seen it that exciting since. I mm. love it, but I've never seen that that exciting sense there's something about knowing the moment right like recognizing like knowing the moment in a scene when everything has the possibility to shift and whether this is an opera scene or a straight play scene or oh. whatever like you know knowing that moment and knowing <clears throat> excuse me knowing how to play it so that you do get that kind of reaction night after night like that that to me you know is such a testament of the caliber of performer because when you do something over and over and over again it's so easy for it to become stale and i think a lot mm -hmm. of opera suffers from this my friend mandy carlin she and i were in that together at that show that's yeah. oh, okay yeah. the beggar woman. yeah it was the beggar woman. yeah mandy was my 
neighbor across the street and she came over and she said, I know you know Sweeney, will you teach me Mrs. Lovett? So I put her through this regimen and I taught her. And you did, I, she was amazing. <laughs> I taught her the show, leaving it open for interpretation and open for staging and all that, but she wanted to learn the show. And I, I, I trained her like an Olympic athlete. Like she sang if she was sick. She sang if she had a sniffle. She sang when she was tired, cranky, upset, nervous, needing a rest. It's like you come over and you sing. Then you Love go do it. the thing. And uh, so that's the closest I've gotten. I don't know if I want to do Sweeney Todd. I'll coach it forever. It seems to be the province of other people, and that's okay. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I, so, but anyway... What, what were you going to say, Alyssa? What I was going to ask is, you know, in that situation as a director where you've had that experience of seeing it done so well, how do you try to bring that to your actors? Not necessarily with Sweeney Todd, but maybe in another, in another instance, in another show. How do you as a director try to bring, you know, bring the moment out of the, and bring that sort of, that playfulness, that, that interaction I don't know. I'm just curious if you have thoughts about that because you were so touched by the way that it was done. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just preface this with, you know, I'm not perfect as a director in my, in always knowing how to find that with people. But when I started directing, I was asked to direct something and I said, no, 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 I don't do that because I had been directed by some wonderful people Truly. I mean, some people that I carry with me as some of the most gentle, genuine, authentic human beings that have ever lived. But I came from an era of shamers and blamers, mm. a lot of alcoholism in theater. And I mean, if somebody wasn't bullied and really put down in some major way every five minutes, it was, you know, a breath of fresh air. So by the time like directing happened in the early 2000s for me, somebody just asked me to do a show and I said, oh, no, 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 I don't do that. And they said, oh, you'd be wonderful. And I was like, no, 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 no. Because I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to do that kind of thing. And then my partner, Brent, um, he said, well, what if you could do it the way you wanted to? I said, well, if I really did it the way I wanted to, It'd be more like an acting piece because I don't know if singers really work like this. So I did this. I did this show. It was a Bernstein show. I, I mean, it was a it was a, a review of Bernstein. And actually, it was it was Brent who asked me what happened was this little company he was working for in Connecticut. We were living in Manhattan at the time. They wanted to do an evening of Bernstein. And I helped him pick the music. And it was like, well, there's Broadway music. And he knew that I knew all the Broadway music. And there's art song. And then there's a little bit of opera and blah, blah. I said, we could start the evening with the musical theater stuff and then move through. And the evening gets progressively deeper. And when we were done with that, he said, well, why don't you just direct it? So that's the first thing I did. And I worked with four marvelous, marvelous, marvelous people. And... When it was done, it almost was like two weeks. It's like when it was done, basically the singer said, the next thing you do, please let me know. I want to work with you again. And that really surprised <laughs> me. It surprised me. And I'm not saying that like mm. faux modesty. It really surprised me. I was not used to that. 
I ended up doing something else. And like I said, that's, I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I haven't found my way into everybody. But I don't like people to imitate other people. I don't even like to stage something the same way twice unless I don't have any time and I'm just like, let's just do what I know. But I think to answer your question, Alyssa, I what my what my impetus is, I'm having trouble putting words to this because I'm not used to speaking about it like this. Sure. I'm used to You're with just my, being in it. Yeah. Here's what it is. I thought for a long time I was a singer who really loved musicals, and then I was a musical guy who really liked acting, and then I was an actor who really figured out how to move, and then I was a mover who could shape people, and it's like, uh, it's like, what are you, what are you, what are you? And what I know now is that I'm a communicator who likes to help people find ways to express themselves fully, whether it's in life coaching or directing or a vocal coaching or through their writing or uh, music that they might write, that I'm not helping them with the music, but helping them with their process. I really love to do anything in which people grow. And I'm really good at spotting it because <laughs> I did an awful lot of work on myself and it sort of takes one to know one. There's there's not very much that can surprise me. So when I am doing an opera, whether it's a scene or an opera itself, I have a real good idea of how things work. Like the structure of Johnny Skeeky, for instance. This needs to happen, and this needs to happen, and this needs to happen, and this needs to happen. This doesn't necessarily need to happen, but I think if this happens, this is going to make this thing over here really funny. Because it's like it, it's like the seeds of what are going to come later have to be planted here. Right. And so that engages my mind, but then it's like you take this group of people and say, this is where I see it going, direction, Here's where we're going. We're going straight down this road. We're making a left. Then we go down the hill and you make a right at the tree near the rock. That's where we're going. How we get there is I want you to breathe. I want you to feel what you're doing. Say what you mean using these lines that are scripted and we will find it as far as the music and the text. We're going to find it from the outside in. And as far as where we're we're starting us saying, let's start as a group of people who don't like each other. We're starting from the inside out. And to me, it's like where those two things meet becomes the actual show people see. Because it isn't all from the inside out. It isn't all from the inside out. I had an actor who was a marvelous actor. His name is Vince. And he played George in a production of She Loves Me that I did. And he wasn't a singer. In fact, I was giving him voice lessons twice a week because he needed to be able to carry a tune, which is all the character needs. It's not written for a singer. It's written for an actor who can carry a tune. And he was brilliant. And I asked, it was in a university, and, and I asked everybody to write a paper because I was partly wanting to know what they'd learned so I could learn myself what it was I was doing. And his paper was a series of Post-its. And he had this one that was brilliant. It was a yellow Post-it 
and it had a circle made with a pen in the center. The circle was about a quarter of an inch in diameter. And it had an arrow pointing to the circle and it said, act here now. Hmm. And he said, that's what I learned in musicals. You don't have the luxury of finding the moment to let it through, of saying it a little differently tonight than you did last night, because no matter what's going on in your head or what you're feeling, that line has to be delivered now. <laughs> right here. Right. I think that happens in opera as well, like all the time. And you're talking about dotted 30 seconds. Yes. Oh, man. You, know, you sure are in Johnny's Geeky. Holy crap. <laughs> I mean, so anytime the structure is highly built, it's a matter of getting all your chops, your, your, your vocal chops, your musician chops, your musicality chops. I can't stand people that have great musicianship and no musicality. It drives me bonkers. <laughs> but you get your vocal chops, your musician chops, you get your acting chops, and you bring your energies to it. You know, you're not trying to be somebody else. You're bringing your energies in your mm. own mind. And you put all of that into all of these things. Because that's what's unique, right? How can it not be unique? That's right. Right? Because, look, it's, for instance, it's the same Puccini. We'll go to the Skiki. It's the same Puccini. It's always the same music. It's always the same orchestration. I mean, we we vary up the instrumentation or whatever, but I mean, it's already been written. Right. But it hasn't been written. It's like I even tell this to my I, – I teach at a performing arts high school twice a week. I even tell these kids. It's like sometimes I take the score like to Mozart, something they love, like the magic flute. And I go, what is this? And he goes, the magic flute. And I go, who loves the magic? Oh, we love magic flute. And it's like, who wrote it? Oh, Mozart. Oh, my God, we love Mozart. Oh, we can't live without Mozart. And I go, right? And then I drop the book on the floor. And it's like they all are like, you know, ah, what are you doing? And it's like I point to it and I say, that is not the magic flute. That is a roadmap to the magic flute. All hmm. it is, 300 or so sheets of paper with some ink on both sides. And if you follow that ink, if you follow it, you learn it, you find it in yourself and learn the words and learn what the story is. Then we have a chance of visiting the magic flute. Right. And the other part of that is who thinks they can't live without Mozart? And they go, oh, my God, I couldn't live without Mozart. Oh, my God. You know, they're, they're like 13. I couldn't live without Mozart. <laughs> it's Yay, like, there's yeah. hope. There's hope. <laughs> it's like, what? But here, you know, every yin has a yang. Here's the flip side. Mozart can't live without you. Because without mm -hmm. you, without you, Mozart goes back to being Inca that 300-so-odd page printed out by Shermer 35 years ago that's got coffee stains on it and it sits on a shelf gathering dust and everybody can go, oh, we love Mozart, but it's like, it's a book. If you want to bring Mozart to life, you have to bring your own and create it. So 
to me, there's no imitation. Like my friend, I, I didn't, I didn't train Mandy to imitate Angela Lansbury. I taught her what the moments are, what the moments can be, possible choices, and there's always at least one more choice. If somebody says you've got two choices, there's at least three, if not 12 or 15 or 100. But to, to make her be that, why make her Angela Lansbury? Angela Lansbury is doing fine being Angela Lansbury. But what Mandy if you're trying to be, you know, it's like while you're busy. Exactly. It's like while you're busy being somebody else, who's going to be you? Yeah. yeah. And man, <laughs> no one. it feels like that's sort of like the chasing thing that happens all the time. Right. I, I wanted to go to something that we've all that we've chatted about a little bit about the first rehearsal process. Um, because I Oh, Rachel, really quick, before you go into that, can I just say one thing yeah. and uh, to end out this last little bit we were yes, talking sure, about? I'm sorry. Sure. So, um, so I was just thinking about this, this, um, teen pop music sensation named Billie Eilish. I don't know if you guys are familiar with who she is or what she does. Oh, it's a girl. Yes. So no. And she... <laughs> I know, I know. And I feel like I'm, yeah, anyway, I have, I have singing students who love her. And so I've been a little bit, um, either on a vocal fry or with a lot of breath in the voice or, but she is all about sort of spectacle. And like, she's, she's like, um, the song I was working with my student on yesterday is called, uh, bad man. I think I'm the bad man anyway. And she's like the, the might seduce your dad, man. Like, I'm like, wow, like, okay, so here's this 17 year old girl who's just like unabashed and she's just like putting herself out there and they style her in a way, which I respect a lot in baggy clothing and things. So she's not a sex object, which I I'm grateful, you know, she's 17 years old, um, but she's so, so uniquely herself, at least as far as I can tell, I don't know who she's trying to imitate if she's trying to imitate someone else. And it is such, she has become, she's setting records. She has become such a sensation. And I think it's because people look at her and they say, I want to do that. I want to be myself. I want to unabashedly put forward and be and, and buck the system and be irreverent and say whatever I want to say. You know, and so they see in her this sort of example or this idol of what they would also like to achieve. But I just wanted to say that because you know, she has taken that on for whatever reason, she has the courage to be a thousand percent herself, even though she's weird or she doesn't fit societal norms or whatever. And people love it. They, I mean, they are, it's like the Beatles. I saw people at a live concert of hers crying, hysterical. And I was like, really? But I think that's what it is. I think that's why. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, well, the Beatles, from things that I've read, feminist literature that I've read about it, I think that I think I'm saying I think I think one of the reasons the Beatles were such this this the phenomenon that they were was because the teenage girls that were going insane for them had been so oppressed. Uh. They were they were being so squashed into those, you know, those those late 1950s dresses in the Catholic school girl and the you don't say this and you don't talk about that and you give over to men and you and you suck it all down and suddenly there's these 
just enough long hair to not be conservative. Right. And the mop top. they're saying, yeah. I want to hold your hand. And these girls are suddenly being unleashed from. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. Yes. And conservatives are looking at their watches going like, these songs aren't that interesting. Right. It's like singing this, this stuff for years. It's like, I want to hold your hand. Why are they going crazy? It's like, well, yeah. So it's like this, that you're talking about this girl um, who I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't even know of her. You should um, check her out. Billie Eilish. I think that, uh, I think that, I think that when people say the truth, whatever it is, and sometimes the way someone says the truth is a great deal of the truth that they're trying to say, not just what they're saying, but how. I remember as a kid, something I I was severely punished for, but I once said to my entire family, my mother, my father, and my grandparents were there, and I was talking about something, I was, I think, 14 or 15, and they were like poo-pooing it. They were saying, now, Marky, and now, you know, it's just like, just watch, watch the way you're talking. And I finally lost it, and I said, you don't ever listen to what I have to say. It's only how I say it. And I cannot figure out how to say it in a way that you listen. Interesting. Mm. And that has been, I see it. I, and I'm not singling myself out as like, you know, wow, like, look at you. It's like, I see that so often. The frustration is people looking at the style in which something is communicated and then the style becomes part of the communication and when other people like when other people want to say like oh I want to do that myself it's like they just get up there you know and they're going like you know yeah you know it's like I I mean <laughs> and they like they try to imitate the style which is being said so what that really tells me is that, and you work with kids, you also, you have this reaffirmed, and I learn a lot from it too, is that everybody has something to say. Everybody has something to say. If we can remember things that happened to us as little kids, we can remember how we felt, and we can actually work through it. If we can remember how we felt and thought, then we must have been feeling it then, and we must have been thinking about something then, even if we didn't have words for it then, that could be articulated. I think that in a world where people don't really listen to each other, there's a world full of people screaming to be heard when somebody's actually able to do it and it's successful, and what they actually put out there, you can hum a few bars and you can really go with it, that's that's the winning combo. It's powerful. Right. Yeah. Like, it's my voice too. But and I and I think, you know, the danger with it is that it's like that's my voice too. I want to do that because that's how I feel. And it's like, well, you do feel that, but you still are going to be able to interpret something completely unique because of your own experience and you must. Like that's how I feel. Like you must yes. because you only you can have your experience. And only you can share that and anything else becomes imitation. And when it becomes imitation, right. then we've lost uh, what it is to be an artist or even just to be a person like 
being a person means that you are unique. And yeah, so I think about I think about that a lot. Well, yeah, I like I like the distinction you just made between being an artist and a person. It's like, you know, it's like the difference between a square and a rectangle. It's like a square has all the properties that a rectangle has with the added limitation that each side is the same size, is the same length. So a square is a rectangle by definition, but a rectangle is not necessarily a square. It's like, I don't think you have to be an artist per se to be a person. Right. And I certainly know lots of artists who aren't yet people. <laughs> right? right? Sorry. They really that, but no, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't, you know, there's like this wonderful book called The Artist's Way. And it's really about how everyone is an yeah. artist. And, and I, I love that. And... It, there's lots of ands. I live in a world of both and rather than either or. It's both this and that and something even larger. I don't think you have to be an artist. My friend Harriet used to say this. She said one day she made this beautiful flower arrangement and she, or no, her mother made this beautiful flower arrangement and she used to put it on there on their table before dinner and someone said oh you do such beautiful flower arrangements you should open you should be a florist and th the response was to pick flowers for my family for the table and there's lots of other things i do i don't i think this idea i think it i don't know if it's a western idea or an american idea but the idea that you are what you do professionally it's really ridiculous. And that both means, you know, I don't mean that like if somebody plays air guitar, they are a musician. I don't mean that. <laughs> like, it's like in a world where the extremes don't matter because everything is true. It's like if you play air guitar, you might underneath that be a real musician, but you've actually got to pick up an actual guitar to actually play music. Mm. Um, but then neither does it mean that because you have a PhD that you're enjoyable to listen to. Right. Is it, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's, it's, yeah. Artistry, it's interesting because in some ways it is kind of a, it's almost, you know, it's almost a vague thing. It's like, how do you, how do you define it? And how can you define it in a way? Right. Well, and what's, what's interesting to me too, I've seen this for years and years now, ever since I entered the field is like, well, if you do more than one thing, just have a separate website for all of them so that people will think you're serious about the thing that you have, the, the website that doesn't mix anything together, you know? But we are mixed together, right? I loved what you said, Mark. Um, I refer to my notes here. I'm taking notes. I, you are poetic when you speak, and I'm enjoying so much of what you're, what you're saying. You're a communicator who loves to help people find who they are, whether in life or in performance. And I think that it's there is a holistic um, aspect to what we do, right? And if we are going to bring our whole selves to a performance, we have to sort of bring our whole selves, right? And not just bring, well, this is the opera singer part of me. And that's who you get to meet and work with because I'm compartmentalized, you know, but no, it's actually, you know, I'm also the yogi and I'm the, I'm the other things that that's kind of the stereotypical thing, but I'm, I'm other things too that are maybe not typical of, of an opera singer. And because I'm those things, I'm me. And so I bring not just soprano voice, I bring Elisa Peterson. There you go. 
Well, of course. And, and, and what you're talking about isn't, isn't new. I don't mean, therefore, it's not valid. I'm saying it's, it's extremely valid. And this isn't a new phenomenon. For instance, what, let's say even just 30 years ago, let's say just 30 years ago, actors in New York that did musicals had two resumes. You had your actor's resume, and then you had your musical resume because the music on the resume made certain acting people uncomfortable, thinking that you weren't quite as serious as you needed to be in order to do a, 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 a piece of drama or, you know, something that relied on your acting chops. Right. Um, or people would also have, they'd have their theater and film and commercial resume, and then they'd have their theater because, again, yeah. presenting myself as today, but if you put the whole thing together, it's kind of like a blind date idea to me. It's like, in a blind date, you can't tell every you can't tell the person everything about yourself. They get the basics, and then as you get to know somebody, if you continue to be interested, more unfolds and more. Mm. Unfolds. It's like, well, sometimes if I get a resume, I, I did West Side Story, a concert version about a year ago, which was terrific, and I was getting these resumes, and it's like, here are the musical theater credits and the dramatic credits and the television credits and the, and the, and the commercials. And they've studied with, you know, there's 13 music people and then acting. It's like eight different academies. It's like, I have no idea from this resume. What you actually can do. What you do because <laughs> presenting is, it's like, it's like being a mutt. It's like, well, I can be a poodle. I can be a dachshund. I'll I can, be anything you want me to be. Yeah. To me, <laughs> to me, that is like, that's like, it's like artistic codependency. I will be anything you want me to be in order to have this be a relationship. It's like, if you're willing to be anything you want to be, you're assuming that you're assuming that I need a chameleon rather mm. than a person. And how about this? How about... Let's say if you show me who you are, maybe you're not right for this particular thing. Maybe you cannot solve a casting problem in this particular production, but I love what you did and who you are and who you are so much that, you know, we're doing this thing in 6 months. Are you available? Mm -hmm. You know, I I do that all the time. I even do that with the kids. I'll stop them at an audition and go, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. What are you doing?" And they're like, you know, they're looking out at the audience, they're looking left and right in the middle and they're looking up to God. Like, just stop. Like, is there a fly in front of you? What's happening? You know, it's like, we're right here. We're right here. Gently look over our heads. You're among friends. And sing something truthful, and all they show up a little bit more, and it's like, well, I thought at first when she walked in, she might be right for the sister, but seeing what she can do, huh? I could see her playing the mother's friend. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of that because I'm, I'm doing this is the real speaking right. But I mean that that's how that stuff actually works in real life. It's like. 
if you're if you're trying to be it's like going out on a date i mean i'm i'm happily married for 18 years to a beautiful man i am not dating but Rachel and I had, we had a lunch date. It's a date. We're getting to know each other. Do we like each other? Are we interested in what each other thinks? It's a date. If you go to anything, whether it's in a, a, a job or a friend or talking with your mother, you know, if you're trying to be what the other person, if, no, if you're trying to be what you think the other person wants, you are not even there. You are beyond. Absent. You are you're, you're absent. You're you're in the negatives. You're a ghost. And all that can really, all that can happen because every vacuum that you create has to be filled by something. Nature abhors a vacuum, including a spiritual vacuum. This includes auditions. Something's going to enter. So. If you want to go in saying, I'm not going to be who I am because I'm afraid they won't want me, what you will end up having a life of is participating by your fingernails, by, you know, by the skin of your teeth. If you do participate, it's like, oh, I, I, I skimmed through that audition and I got it. Now I've got to figure out what I did at the audition that made them like me so I can still do it. That is called codependency mm. it's exhausting it, it, it's exhausting and it's exhausting for the person who is dating you it's exhausting for the person opposite you because when you like when you're sitting at the casting table this is what singers sometimes don't know well all we all don't know this and i'm saying singers because you're both singers is that everybody at that table has a problem it's a casting problem. We need this to be cast. We have to find people that really fit and are creative. So every time somebody walks through that door, everyone is sitting there going, I hope it's you. I hope you're wonderful. At least I do. It is like dating then. <laughs> <laughs> right? When you're looking for somebody, yeah, you're hoping it's them. Oh, goodness. What was I going to say about this whole question of, oh, yeah. Um, Rachel brought up earlier about first rehearsal. And I didn't mean to cut that off, Rachel. I'm so sorry. But the first rehearsal is kind of like that it first date, to too, great, right? It led to a great and, place. And so it's all good. It is. Yes, I agree with it you. Did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, went, I recently went to a first rehearsal and I was not nervous for this first date with these people. I was so excited to dive into a new creative venture, to get to know people, to see what they were gonna bring to the table and to bring what I was gonna bring too. Because this was a role I've never done in full, but it's perfect for my voice. Was it? Countess Amaviva in Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anyway, to make a long story short, <laughs> we're in legal proceedings now. I did not do the role. The people there were not a good first date for me. First rehearsal. I just think it's fascinating because Mark's first rehearsal process was so refreshing. So Rachel, let's table that until okay. the next time. Okay. But, but remember from this clip, what you just said about that, about Mark. like, talk, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah. Yeah. Go. I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you You're so welcome. much. Thank you, thank you for thank being you. who you are. 
You've no. done a lot of work and it's beautiful. So thank you. I mean, thank on you. yourself, I mean, the work you've done <laughs> in the world too, I'm sure is beautiful. I'd love to see it sometime. Oh, thank you. Thanks very okay. much. It was a pleasure. Yes. All right. Next I'll see time. you guys. Thank you. Bye.